We turn now to the Word of God and read together Psalm 62. The setting is this to the chief musician, to Jeduthun, a psalm of David. Truly my soul silently waits for God. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. How long will you attack a man? You shall be slain, all of you like a leaning wall and a tottering fence. They only consult to cast him down from his high position. They delight in lies. They bless with their mouth, but they curse inwardly. My soul waits silently for God alone, for my expectation is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. And God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Surely men of low degree are a vapor. Men of high degree are a lie. If they are weighed on the scales, they are altogether lighter than vapor. Do not trust in oppression, nor vainly hope in robbery. If riches increase, do not set your heart on them. God has spoken once, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. Also to you, O Lord, belongs mercy, for you render to each one according to his work. Thus far we read the word of God at Psalm 62. May God bless us. This word is powerful to have its way with us and in all the world to show that God is the God of a great word. We want to consider especially stanzas uh, stanza 1, 5, and verses 11 and 12. I'll read them again. Truly my soul silently waits for God. From him comes my salvation. That's verse 1. Verse 5, my soul waits silently for God alone. For my expectation is from him. And then the last two verses, God has spoken once. Twice I've heard this, that power belongs to God. Also to you, O Lord, belongs mercy, for you render to each one according to his work. I don't know about yourselves, beloved, but sometimes it seems hard to relate to psalms, All the Bible, in fact, we're so out of touch with truth. But sometimes to Psalms we can have trouble relating, if only because the setting is so different from our situation in life. And that of which it speaks may seem so foreign to us. And so, for example, the psalmist speaks of, of enemies. We wonder, well, we don't have any enemies. How is this word for us? Oh, beloved, the wonderful thing of the Bible, the truth of it, is its truth not only, but its relevancy as God's word to all time and to every person and to all the world together. This is God's word, for, uh, after all, of God. 
God is the God of everyone in the sense that he's creator and provider, and especially is the God of his people who are redeemed by him and by Jesus' blood. You know that as a relevant word here for you today. And so for all the differences we may be feeling, for example, when we approach a psalm like Psalm 62, I want you to know that this is the psalm you have to get. This is the psalm I, I say without exaggeration, but with, with holy motivation to communicate this word to you. This is the psalm, really, that's the only psalm. It's the only psalm. And I say this not because it's the only one in the Psalter, but because there's 150 of them, but because the theme of the psalm is only. And if you notice, in the first eight, nine verses or so, the word only, in one way or another, is brought out. My soul silently waits for God, truly, which could be translated only. My soul only silently waits for God, and from him comes my salvation only. And then the theme of only is brought out again. He only is my rock and my salvation. And you can apply the only to the rest of the things that God, uh, the psalmist says of God. He only is my defense, and therefore I shall not be greatly moved, and so on. And so verse 6 carries the same only through. He only is my rock and my salvation, and, and so on. Well, what I want to say then is that there's something about this only that's key here. And for different reasons in the psalm, as we shall see. But may you come to this psalm and know that it's for you. And maybe you want to apply this so personally as the psalmist does and say to yourself, this is only for me now. Everybody else is going to receive this psalm in a different way than I do. But I need to hear this. And you need to hear this. And we need to hear this only. Don't hear anything else except what God would say to us only through this psalm right now. So we want to consider uh, how the, the psalmist hears the sounds, in fact, and he silently hears sounds. And silence is something that is only brought out in this psalm as in no other place. So we want to hear that and hear the silence. And then we want to talk about that silence. Something here about having God only as your God that promotes silence. Silence. You've been silent lately? Be as silent as the psalmist. It's the only psalm, remember. We need to be silent. We need to hear this. And then finally, I want to consider where this silence is heard and where other things are heard and where that hearing of other things increases so that there's even more silence. So we're dealing with, with different concepts here and, and truths that are brought out and they're placed together, but now only for you, only for me, only for us together now. Something that's important, I find, in this text that twice speaks of a soul silently waiting for God. 
is that that same soul has heard something, and that's why he's silent. That's the end of the verses that we read here, the end of the psalm. God has spoken once. Twice I've heard this, that power belongs to God, also to you, O Lord, belongs mercy. You will render to every man according to his work. Back of the silence in which he's waiting silently upon God and trusting him as only God, he's heard something. And this, in fact, is the beginning of the gospel, the beginning of the good news, the beginning of something we all need to hear about this, what the psalmist has heard, if we would be God's people. There's something prior to our reactions. It's called the action of God. Something first before our doing. It's called the doing and the action, the work of God. Someone before we are. He is God. And so the psalmist is speaking of his silently waiting for God. He's God-centered because before the silence and as that which has worked the silence, he's heard something from God. And if you look at the expression in Psalm 62, it can be confusing, but it's a Hebraism to emphasize if nothing else when God has spoken once and twice I've heard this, that the psalmist has gotten it. Before he's silent and before he speaks it all, he's gotten what God has said. God has spoken once and twice I've heard this. And again, it may stress the God has spoken once and the twice that he's heard this, something that the psalmist in Psalm 89 brings out. And verse 36 of something uh, that is absolutely sure. Once have I sworn by my holiness, verse 35, I will not lie to David. This idea of God speaking once or twice speaks of the fact that it's going to happen. It is, in fact. When God says something, there's something powerful here. Could be as well that the psalmist is referring to the fact that God has spoken once and maybe again and again and again. He's spoken one thing at one time and, and he's heard that and he's, and he's spoken that against again and another time and, and I've heard all of this. It could be that the psalmist is referring when fundamentally he's, he's referring to the fact that it's important that God has said something. He's referring to the fact that well, he's heard whatever God has said and how many times God has said it. He's gotten it. God has spoken once, twice I've heard this. The commentator has said, sometimes God speaks twice and more and speak, people only hear once. They don't really get it. But sometimes with other people, God speaks once and they hear twice. And three times and four times, even though God has only spoken once, like this. Ever been in the mountains or in a cave or in a tunnel driving down the road? Echoes. God speaks maybe from the mountaintops of his own being, his height. 
And it echoes and resounds and redounds to his glory in all of the sound that's gone out in all the earth. And the echoes of what God has said, you hear it again and again and again. So the psalmist has God in his mind. God, God, God. Everywhere creation is speaking of the glory of God and There's the preaching of the word of God. There's the conscience in which God has written truth. You know it. Coming into this church, if you've never heard church words, you've still heard the word of God some way, somehow, in your conscience, in your experience. He's not leaving you with excuse to say, well, I never heard. You've heard, and I've heard. This is what is on the psalmist's mind, and he's speaking of this. This is fundamental to any psalmist who's going to write something that's worthy of the name of psalmist of Israel. He's heard something to write about, to sing about, to pray about, and even to be silent about. God has spoken once. Twice I've heard this. What is it that the psalmist in particular has heard? Well, it's brought out right after the fact that is recorded that he's heard from God. Here are two things. That power belongs to God and mercy. For also to you, O Lord, belongs mercy. And he speaks there of that twin Those twin virtues, power and mercy, or righteousness and truth, those things that meet together in God and together are revealed from God, things that maybe worldlings might deny when they see us powerless. To your God, you say, belongs power. Well, look at you, you powerless people, you wimps. You can't do a thing against me. You're not near as strong as I am and influential in the community as we are. And so maybe they're challenged that. But the psalmist is not convinced of what the world says. Power belongs to God, he says. He's omnipotent. He has it all. This is the idea of that, the truth of that. And this is the truth of that as well. When there is power in the world and among worldlings, even who are bad people, and they have this influence in this cloud and in the White House and the greenhouse, wherever they are, the truth is they would have no power except God gave it to them. And even with their power that's given of God, God is using that power for his purposes. He's sovereign. This is our church, sovereign, powerful, kingly grace is what we confess here. God's grace, God's power, God's world, God's church, God's people. Power belongs to God. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Jesus says we are to pray Remembering that God is God, our Father in heaven. You know that? God's is the power. 
God's is the power. And the idea here also is that God's is the power so that he has the prerogative to judge. He has the right to judge, not appointed by a people or some legislative body is God for life. And then when they die, they're no longer on the court. God is always supreme. His tribunal, called the Trinity, is always ruling. And he is powerful to judge, and he has the right to judge. But then also this, he's merciful. Also to you, O Lord, belongs mercy. Any mercy in this world, any, any hint of something that's good is from God. Every good and perfect gift, like mercy among men, is from God. Sadly, it's so distorted. The truth of God's mercy is so distorted that the tender mercies of the wicked, the wise men says, are cruel. And so when free handouts are given and there's no accountability, that's cruelty. It promotes this terrible thing called irresponsibility and thinking that you have something coming to you. To God belongs perfect mercy. Pity for the helpless. That's what mercy is. Love in this category of love that has to do with people who really need something and they're provided for by God because it belongs to God to give mercy and he shows mercy. So to God belongs power and to God belongs mercy. Well, this is what we know is the truth of this. The truth, remember, of the word that God has once spoken that twice the psalmist has heard. Well, it's the truth of Jesus. And so we're reminded at the very end of this psalm of what the beginning is all about and everything else the psalmist will say. He says something, and this is how we can relate of the word of God, Jesus Christ, in whom God has revealed his power and his mercy. We sing versifications of Psalm 85, and him, mercy, and truth are met together. When God spoke in Bethlehem and there was this amazing birth and amazing conception of the Holy Spirit, it was power and mercy come down. Emmanuel with us, power and mercy and righteousness and truth and love and wisdom and everything of God. And so we behold the glory of God in Jesus. And then in his words and his works, And in his death, his atonement, mercy and truth meet together. Power and the judge meeting there in his mercy as well and showing his condemnation of sin and sinners, but also his pity upon a people that cannot help themselves and lift a finger to save themselves. The word, beloved, we preach here is the word of Jesus Christ And in him, God shows that all power, all justice, all right, all judgment, and all mercy belong to God. And he will show that power, and he will have that mercy upon whomsoever he will. He's sovereign, he's king, and he will be glorified in this. Now, that's the word that the psalmist has heard. There's no other word that's heard from heaven. No other word. 
by the word of the Lord, with the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth, the spirit of his mouth, the word and the spirit being communicated by God the Father. The word of the Old Testament and the prophets, and, and maybe the psalmist is, is thinking about this. On Sinai we heard once, and then through the prophets we heard twice, and through another prophet, and I've heard in the types and the shadows, we, we don't know how what the psalmist is exactly referring to here, except we know this. He's, he's saying God has certainly heard or spoken, and I've certainly heard. But now in these latter days, we've heard undeniably and clearly and fully all that God ever has said, did say, does say, and will say. Jesus Christ the Son. You see, the Word will have preeminence. The Word will be heard. The sound, the, all the creation is like a sounding board for God. Their sound has gone out, the psalmist says, into all the earth, referring, Romans 10, to the preaching of the gospel. That especially is what's heard and is powerful to work faith. That's why we come to church as often as we can and should, because their faith is worked. As in no other venue, this is the place, beloved, we need to be. For faith comes by the hearing of the word, and the ministers are sent, and how shall they be sent except by God through the church? This wonderful sounding board of truth that saves but also truth that pricks the heart and works repentance and a clinging to Jesus for our righteousness. Now this word, heard by the psalmist, once, twice, and over and over, there's the echoes, heard on his bed at night, heard at work, heard taking care of the, the sheep, heard on vacation, Heard in our trials, heard in rebuking us when we've wandered into the bar and we shouldn't have. Heard in bringing us back. We've been so far away from God. You work faith. Now, beloved, this is the one thing that's on his mind, always, the word of God. Because David's a believer. The psalmists are believers, and they're given faith, the faith of Abraham, who is the father of all believers. And there's one thing the Bible says, God works faith. And these people, they didn't respond to that, as we'll see presently. The problem the psalmist had, different than ours, but so similar, is that there's a lot of things to hear. A lot of things, isn't there? A ton of things. And maybe, yes, definitely, more today are the varieties of words and communications and the whole thing, call it noise, than ever there has been. We live in this media-saturated world. I'm getting sick and tired of it. I don't know about you. 
and especially not because it's wrong in itself to have an iPhone and this stuff and all that, because it's so deafening. What words can you describe? All this media. Distracting? Yes, it is. Discouraging for us old folks and the generation that didn't grow up with this and we wonder how the kids can get the different modes and all this stuff and and we got to get our text messages and we got to receive the pictures and and all this stuff and and we we ignore the conversation that could be had right in our living room because we're on the phone and all of it has this ever affected you and you're hearing this and you're hearing that and pretty soon you say I've got to hear it now really And the words that are spoken are not just neutral, are they? Oftentimes they're poisonous words. The psalmist speaks here of men accusing him falsely. They delight in lies. And verse 4 and so on, they bless with their mouth, they curse inwardly. The world has lots to offer through its media its entertainment and its things and all that. So it's a miracle that the psalmist has heard. And then this, the reaction, second point, that in the midst of all the noise of the world, he's in the world. This isn't, by the way, penned in heaven. It's on earth, of heaven, but in earth, on earth. In the midst of that, he speaks of this silence, And that's a good way to translate the word here, which is used generally for waiting on God. My truly my soul silently waits in italics in the King James, but or in the New King James, waits for God. Truly my soul silent is how we could translate it. Silent for God. There's an emphasis there. And then verse five, my soul. Wait silently for God alone, for my expectation is from him. So you have these words that have been spoken once and twice and definitely heard to move the psalmist. And the words that he's heard have made for silence in his soul. No words from his soul. Just silence there. Now, how different from the other psalm, 61, that we just considered, where the psalmist there is crying, Hear my cry, O God, attend to my prayer. From the end of the earth I will cry to you. Lead me to the rock higher than I am. He's crying there. That's a different situation. A different truth that's brought out from the psalmist's experience with God and his word than this truth. Truly, or only, it could be translated that only my soul silence with God or for God. Silence. And then he speaks to his soul, wait silently for God alone. And you'll notice then there's no petition here. He's not crying. He's not saying anything. And that's not 
to be as a pattern for all of our life with God. We don't say anything. Psalm 61, my cry is unto you. He's saying something to God, but here he's silent. And in fact, throughout the whole psalm, you won't find any petition to God. He never talks to God. Talks to his soul, talks to the wicked, talks to the righteous, never to God. Hardly is this found in the psalms, this only psalm. He's silent before God. And there's something wonderful about that. Because it leads him, among other things, and in fact the central thing, to conclude his salvation comes from God. He's silent. The silent is connected to the salvation and the experience of the salvation. It's taking over the silence. Again, because he's heard something from God once and then twice. He keeps on hearing it. It shuts him up. And today, as you consider hearing the word, and as I do, be quiet. Be quiet to hear from God. And what this silence is, is so precious. It's called complete repose in God. Trust. Trust. That's what it is. Completely reclining in the bosom of God. My soul is silent. Isn't that amazing? All the waves of this world, the sea of this world, are silent. It's not because we've gone to the bottom of the sea, but in the midst of the sea, no roiling, no toiling, no discomfort, no anxiety, no perturbance. Silence. And as you're applying this psalm to you, just remember it's the word of God here, which is an example to us of someone who's heard the word of God once and twice and surely. And his reaction is to be a sample of what our life with God should be. Complete trust. This is what is brought out here. He's not doing anything. He's not saying anything. He's not even praying to God. He's done that. He does that. He will do that. You will. I will. We have. But here's his silence. His composure. Here's his expression of what faith is all about. The silence of a sleeping child, maybe. Or maybe of an alert child that's simply looking up to God. Looking up to mom and dad. Resting. And they're trying, is, are the worldlings to get us away from that. And even from the example of babies resting in mother's arms, they'd kill them all before they got even to be in mother's arms. Or they'd kill off the silence between those religious folks 
who live for this other world whose great hope is the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ, who have nothing to offer the world, and they're just so down on the world, they say, they don't want us silently waiting for God. They want us in prayer to God with And on our knees, maybe, in the Bible open, but having that phone right there also. Or having that television on, whatever it is that people have on in the house. Thinking about work, thinking about life, thinking about the future, thinking about worrying about the children. No silence, though. Having a little bit of faith in God, but hedging your bets like an investment. Mutual funds. Mutual gods. Not silence. Just God. Just looking at the watch. Just looking ahead. At the table, reading, shut the book, quick prayer, set it before, move on. We don't even know how long the psalmist was silent here. Truly, my soul silently waits for God. Ten seconds a day. Doubt it. Takes a lot for the commotions of the soul to subside, doesn't it? That's why you come away for a little while for vacations, I suppose. My soul silently waits for God. Are you in that position? Am I? I want you to think about this. I want myself to. Again, I'm tired of all of the noise, all of the ways it leads me. The psalmist in his silence waiting for God is not silence when he talks about God, of course. And this is what we want to consider here. This is what he concludes in his silence. It's connected to the silence. And so he, he comes to this conclusion, this is the glory of faith. He's silently waiting, nothing to hear from the internet and from this aunt and that uncle and from CNN or the BBC that something's happened in China again or something is over here and, you know, this video gone viral, we've got to look at it. He's just, he's silent before God and there's no cacophony, there's no noise. Then he hears from God again. He thinks of God again, and he makes these conclusions. This is how he can say, God is the one who's the source of my salvation. The salvation on the mind. Verse 2, he only is my rock and salvation. Verse 7, in God is my salvation. Verse 6, he only is my rock and my salvation. He's the forgiver of my sins. He's my life. Is he yours? This is the first conclusion of a silent soul. 
that truly believes in God and God forgives you and, and me. This is your psalm, remember. Yours only. Nobody else matters. I say this as a man. You. He's my salvation. I'm hearing that. God is the Savior of sinners. Doesn't matter how bad a sinner you are. Jesus Christ and his blood proved that God will go to the mat for you. And to hell for you. Trust in him. And he rises, and he's your life. He's your all. From him comes my salvation. And then in that sage position, God defends him. This is the, these are the metaphors. He only is my rock and my defense. In verse 6, he only is my rock, my defense, my salvation. The rock of my strength, my refuge is in God. So he keeps going. The metaphor of protection, the preservation of the saints. This is what we believe. In fact, uh, some have even said this is a reformed confession if ever there was one. Here's the origin of salvation. It's all of grace, not of man, not of man's will. He is the one from whom comes salvation. And it didn't originate with me, nor did I contribute to it. Not only that, he saves me the whole day and all the nights and in the night seasons, and so I will never be moved. I shall not be moved. And though, indeed, in verse 2 he says, I shall not be greatly moved, he understands that there is this, this effect of this world on him, but it will not be such that He's entirely and completely taken off the rock and destroyed. So there's this salvation, this confidence in it, this exhilaration in God, and and thus he says that God is my glory. That is, he's everything I'm about. It's not about me. It's about God. So he's just to say in the silence of his God, and notice God only is my strength. God only is my salvation. God only is my rock. And note the personal. If this would be your psalm, mine, note how this is brought out. He is my rock. From him comes my salvation. Verse 1, verse 2, he's my rock and my salvation. He's my defense. My soul waits silently for God alone. From him my expectation, for my expectation is from him. He's my rock, my salvation, my defense, my salvation, my glory, my rock, my refuge. Beloved, how long does it take for us to understand that this word from heaven way up there to the God who's with us in this word, recording history that occurred long ago, How long will it take for us to say, this is mine? Because the Bible says it's mine. As we trust in this word. Say that. I remember first to turn to things spiritual and eternal. It was a delight for me to say with the apostle, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Paul said that, but I say that now. You say that? By the grace of God, I am what I am. 
Now, of course, to be sure, you can't say everything that the psalmist says literally or, or the apostle says. You know, I'm commissioned to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Well, he was in a special way. But in another way, you can say this. We are evangelists and evangelistas, male and female witnesses of the truth of God as it is in Jesus. Or we are not Christian. And we can say, by the grace of God, I am what I am because I need this grace because I am the chief of sinners. Paul could say that. And you're not bragging when you say, I'm the chief of sinners. You're not. Nor are you saying Paul is wrong. But see, the Bible is to get to us, even if it's not flattering. So the psalmist comes to this conclusion. This is in a silence here, in a silence. And I don't think he's come away from the silence as he considers all that God has said and all who God is and his relationship with God. And then even as he speaks of the wicked men and to them, he's speaking to them in verses 3 and 4. How long will you attack a man? You shall be slain, all of you, like a leaning wall and a tottering fence about to go over. And then a generality. They only consult to cast him down from his high position as a king. They delight in lies. They bless with their mouth, but, and, but they curse inwardly. Is something else to say in verses 9 and 10 about the wicked. Surely men of low degree are a vapor. Men of Adam, the ideas. They're a vapor. They're vanity. They're nothing. Men of high degree are a lie. All they do is lie, even in their position. If they are weighed on the scales, they're altogether lighter than vapor. Folks, young folks, I know these. You don't. You know iPhones. I know these. Scales. I lived that long ago or at least I know of them more than you. They had scales at the stores sometimes, too. And so on one side, would, you'd put your product, and another, they'd put weights, and they'd see how much weight you bought of flour, and so you'd pay accordingly. Well, here's the example here, scales. On one side, men of high and low, all together, they go on the one side, and they're lighter than vapor, that is, really light, so that even air tips the scale, they go up. Air is heavier than men. Everything is heavier than men. You think you're so important, you kings, you princes, you nations, you, you causes. God says you're nothing, you're worse, you're, you're less than air. Vanity, says the wise man. And all your oppression and all your robbing thing, forget it. That could amount to anything. But God is saying through the psalmist here that trusting in God, we take this perspective. There's, there's men out there who would get us. Not only that, there's things out there that would get us. If riches increase, uh, don't vainly hope in robbery, verse 10. If riches increase, do not set your heart on them. We talked about that, I think, last sermon. Don't trust in men, don't trust in mammon. Things of the earth, don't trust in them. See, the conclusion that he makes because he's silent before God and he's heard God say something 
is that God is everything. God is my rock. He's gonna, I'm going to trust in him. I'm going to serve him. And everything else is not God, and it's not worthy of my trust. It's not worthy of my fear or my being all roiled about in my soul. Not worth it. How often have you said, I did this, it wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth it. I bought this, I tried that, it wasn't worth it. Never do it again. We have regrets. Here's what the psalmist concludes. And then he talks to the people of God. He says, don't trust in riches. Don't do that. Don't do that. He calls the people of God a trust in him at all times, in fact, and to pour out their heart before God and You see, his silent soul is not this secluded monkish soul. He has a view to the people of God. He's connected to them as their representative, their king. As Jesus to the flock, as Jesus himself silently waits for God in the night of the cross, in the hours of darkness, and nobody else, absolutely nobody in the universe is there to hear him. And even God himself seems to have turned a deaf ear. Silently be with God. Trust in Him. And that leads to this where there can be silence once more and a sound from the silent ones that's gone out into all the world. There's something here from the speech of God and the silence that we have before God. That's the gospel, and that's powerful, very powerful. Too bad that we're so bad at this. Heaven will be lots of wonderful, holy noise, joyful noise, out of silent souls. Waiting upon God. What about us? See, silence in the midst of all the fray and all the noise, it tells the people in this community, in this whole world, there's something more than the noise and the rapids and the busyness and the despair and the drugs. And what you can see and hear. There's something more. This people, they're calm. It's like the prophet Isaiah, chapter 58, when people call the Sabbath a delight. That's one of the reasons for the Sabbath, by the way, that we can be silent better the week to come. When he speaks of the blessing of that, of those who call the Sabbath a delight and don't do their own things on the Sabbath... They ride upon the high places. There's this perspective. That's a figurative way of describing glory, exaltation. God has lifted us above the fray. And this is what he gives to us, this glory, this being above the fray, though in the world. We ride upon the high places, and we see the people chattering down there. And we see them wallowing in the mud. And we see them trying to go up on their mountains and their hills and their fun places, which are not high places. They're low places. They're all low places, 
if they're fun without God. And all their caravans and all of their carousels and everything else. It's fun, but without God, it's just a low place. But we look down, you see. Not smugly, not proudly, but because for the grace of God, there we go. But we're not so affected by it. We're liberated from it. And we hear, but it's not the first thing we hear. And we're moved, but it's not the first movement that moves us. We're not lorded over by that. God's our Lord and our Savior. Be silent, beloved. Be silent. 